0: I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic.
1: And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor.
0: This is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics.
1: Today, we're talking about the unfinished business of the 19th Amendment.
0: And later in the show, we will discuss what Donald Trump has done to the book publishing industry.
1: This is The Politics of Everything. In November 1872, Susan B. Anthony cast her ballot in that year's presidential election. Two weeks later, she was arrested. It wouldn't be until August 1920 that the 19th Amendment was adopted, giving women the right to vote. This year is the 100th anniversary of that milestone in women's suffrage. And yet in the United States today, there are still women who face criminal charges for voting, and many more women who are prevented from voting in other ways. On the show today, we're talking to Melissa Giro-Grant, who's been reporting on the American women who still can't vote. Melissa, thank you for coming on. Thank you. So, Melissa, in some ways, the year 2020 is meant to be a celebration of votes for women, uh, and it's a very high-stakes election year, which makes your reporting on this subject, I think, particularly striking. Can you give us a sense of roughly how many women in America cannot vote today? So the largest category,
2: it seems to be, of women who have lost the franchise are those who lost it because of past criminal convictions or their ongoing involvement with the criminal justice system. And judging by that, that could be anywhere from 600,000 women. It's probably much higher. We don't have authoritative statistics on this, unfortunately. We do know that women are the fastest growing segment of the population of those who are in prison, jails, or under some form of criminal supervision. They have gone from 1980 to the present up by 700%. So that means that the category of women right now who have lost the vote because of that is only growing. Mm -hmm. And as long as our prison population is growing, that will remain the case.
1: So that's a big number on its own. And can you give me a sense of some of the other women who are affected by barriers to voting? So I think people
2: are familiar with voter ID laws, right? Those have have spread across the country, um, sometimes in response to incredibly bogus claims of, of voter fraud. And, you know, one way that those laws particularly impact women is a good number of women don't have identity documents that match their current legal name. Because about 80% of women change their name at marriage, and one third of voting age women don't have ready access to the underlying documents that they would need to prove their identity, that could be enough from being turned away to vote.
1: Okay, so if you are called Joan Smith, you get your driver's license, then you get married and you're Joan Jones, Uh, that could basically mean that you can't vote, or that could make it really hard for you to vote. And this happened to Wendy Davis.
2: Do you remember Wendy Davis from Texas? I I don't know. Tell us about this case. So in 2013, when Wendy Davis was running for governor in Texas, and you remember she kind of came to prominence around reproductive rights in the Texas state legislature. There was that occupation of the legislature trying to run down the clock on an abortion bill. And Wendy Davis was one of the Texas lawmakers really at the center of that effort. So she's running for governor in 2013. She goes to vote And her driver's license, because it includes her maiden name, Wendy Russell Davis, and her voter registration record says Wendy Davis, she was challenged. And of course, you know, Wendy Davis is a member of the legislature at one point running for governor. You know, she knows how to assert her rights at the ballot box in a way that I'm sure many other women Mm -hmm. do not know how to do. And what would happen to them is they would be turned away.
0: Right. You know, Wendy Davis's vote eventually counted because she knew what she had to do to make it count. Correct. But if you don't, then you might just be intimidated out of trying.
2: And that's sort of the largest number of women who are potentially still disenfranchised that it's really hard to quantify. Think about this around immigration and the way that immigrants have been scapegoated for alleged voter fraud. And, you know, there have been efforts to intimidate people who are naturalized citizens out of voting. There have been efforts to intimidate people who have all their documents in order. In Virginia, several years ago, there was a right-wing think tank sort of law project. The Public Interest Legal Foundation, they attempted to create a report on what they said was widespread voter fraud. Long story short, the way that they gathered this information was incredibly poor. They had bad records that they obtained from the state through the normal public records process, but they didn't understand them. They didn't know how to sort of really read these documents to see which were valid voter registrations. As a result, this report that they put out alleging widespread voter fraud, hundreds of people voting illegally, many of them had not voted illegally. And They listed their names, and in some cases, their social security numbers in this document. Some of the people, actually, who were named in this document sued them and and won an apology from them. I talked to the uh, law project that represented some of those clients, and they consider it a victory. But think about the way that that story then would travel through the right-wing media, which it did, right? Mm -hmm. Can you imagine what it is like to have your name circulating in a document like this and people... In this environment, this incredibly Mm -hmm. volatile environment, an incredibly xenophobic political moment, are calling for you to be killed for voting.
1: Right. So I'm also thinking about how those stories spread through other media and the effects they have on people who might be thinking of going out to vote. You don't want to end up on one of those lists, right? So it's a form of voter intimidation that's masquerading as some kind of public accountability project.
2: That's right. And this group, Public Interest Legal Foundation, is continuing to try this in other states, and they're having to be you know, essentially chased around the country.
0: And we were talking about people right now who are qualified under our current laws to vote, but who are intimidated out of it, or people who were formerly qualified to vote but have lost that right. But there's a ton of Americans, as in people who live in and reside in America, uh, who simply don't have the right to vote because they're not citizens, Right.
2: Correct. The voting rights have always been, you know, extend along the lines of citizenship. For the purposes of my story, I looked at people who technically, legally should be able to vote. And what I didn't expect to find was the degree to which the specter of, you know, immigrant voter fraud could still be deployed. Right. Mm. So I think people might see that and think, like, oh, well, they're immigrants. They're not legal to vote anyway. But the reality is, depending on your status, you could. And some of these people who, should have been legal to vote may have had, like, one document missing or something in some cases. Mm-hmm. They can sort of, like, take these technical errors or errors in paperwork and try to blow it up into
1: something much bigger than it is. Mm. But part of this too, I think, is that voting is so much more complicated than we think it should be. Even things like the restrictions on early voting can have the effect of meaning that more women are not able to vote because they don't have the time to get to a polling place on election day. And that means that even though they have the right to vote, they're not able to exercise that right.
2: Right, this is sort of the much broader unfinished business of the 19th Amendment. You know, what does it mean to actually have the right to vote in the law if you don't actually have a way to sort of then challenge all of these other ways that that is chipped away at? I was talking with Nancy Abudu at the Southern Poverty Law Center, who's representing some black women who have been denied the right to vote because they haven't paid the fines and fees associated with their past convictions. And this is Florida State, which is a huge battleground right now for voting rights. Nancy was saying to me that, you know, one of the things that we lack with the 19th Amendment still is any sort of real teeth to it. And like if you are only going to have voting hours open at certain times, that is going to make voting inaccessible to people, right? How do you make a claim that requiring people to pay fines and fees is a violation of the 19th Amendment? And what she was able to do is actually make a pay inequity claim, right? That women actually were not going to be able to make the same kind of money as men who would pay that fine and fee. And also her clients are black women and their clients who have past felony convictions. So even finding a job in the situation that they're in is that much harder. So you have created what is essentially a poll tax and you've gotten away with it. They are going to be in court on August 18th trying to win back the franchise. And August 18th is also the date of the Florida primary. Mm-hmm. They are not going to be able to vote in the primary, but it is possible that they could win their vote back for the presidential election.
1: So that's kind of a symbolic date too, because it's the day that the 19th Amendment was ratified. I think what's interesting here is a lot of the reasons that you're pointing to that are preventing women from voting are not necessarily overtly because they're women, but the effect is that it prevents women from voting. And I think this is where we see the problem with the wording of the 19th Amendment. Um, I'll read it for us. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So as long as the reason you're being prevented from voting is not because of your sex, the 19th Amendment is still being upheld. Correct. Supposedly.
2: Right. I mean, because of the language of the 19th Amendment so narrowly focuses on sex, I think that it, it has sort of given people the impression that this is something that's already won rather than sort of an opening gambit that's going to be, have to be defended uh-huh. through many legal challenges.
1: Right. And the stakes here are really about as high as they could be. You've been writing about a woman, Lanisha Bratcher, who was actually arrested in 2018 and faces criminal charges. Can you tell us a bit about what's been happening with her? So Lanisha voted in the 2016 presidential election
2: in North Carolina um, and then years later, was arrested and charged with a felony voter fraud. She is somebody who also had lost her right to vote through a felony conviction. She believed that she had regained that right, but because she was still on parole, technically she was not legal to vote. However, she was still able to register. So she was very like taken aback by the fact that she could be allowed to do these things. And then two years later, police come for her Mm -hmm. and she's facing prison time for this. Her case is still unresolved.
0: Yeah, I remember in the Bush years, they tasked the Justice Department with trying to root out as much voter fraud as they could find. This has been an obsession for years on the right. And these were very dedicated political investigators looking to find evidence of what they actually believed was massive voter fraud. And after a year or so of effort, they, they found basically nothing. And this case sounds a lot to me like we found one and we're going to make an example of her.
2: And I think that's why we're seeing so many women of color picked up in these kinds of bogus prosecutions. The people who already have like the least resources to fight back are going to be who they go for.
0: Mm -hmm. We have the basic outlines of who is being denied the right to vote or, or for whom it's being made difficult. How is that shaping our government, our politics, our country?
1: So
2: in this open legal challenge in Florida right now, where people are trying to win back the franchise, people who have had past felony convictions, two women at the forefront of that fight, Rosemary McCoy and Sheila Singleton, I got to talk to them about, you know, why they are suing the state, essentially. Like, why are you putting yourselves out there? Why are you drawing this attention to yourself? And and they didn't say well, you know, the vote is so noble or like, well, like, this is just part of my rights. Like they immediately jumped to the impact of it. Right. They immediately were able to say, like, we are living in a moment where our president is killing us. We are living in a country where we are spending more money on police than we are spending on schools. And we are living in a particular community where we have no say over our sheriffs, our prosecutors, our local legislators, city council people. And how does that make us feel walking around? That is also, like, not a new case. Like, that's the case that Black women have been making for suffrage for 100 years as well. It's not just about, like, granting me citizenship as a woman. It's about what you do with that and what you can do with that.
0: If, for example, felony disenfranchisement was just abolished across the board tomorrow, I do, like, I I think it would have pretty immediate effects in the politics of particular places, particular states and particular cities and regions.
2: The Sentencing Project estimates that there's, you know, just over 6 million people around the country who are disenfranchised because of felony disenfranchisement alone. So it's a huge number of people. And also almost every single state has some form of felony disenfranchisement. There are only two states that don't, Vermont and Maine. It is something that I think is just sort of like taken for granted and maybe many people don't even know about it. But I think once you learn about it, if you have a certain political project in mind and you learn that this could unleash 6 million voters, right, that the stakes there are pretty high And in a state like Florida, even more so.
0: Absolutely. And it is when you look at how much energy on the right is put towards restricting the vote, you do have to think that they must have very good reasons for that.
1: I also wonder if there is a level of complacency around the 19th Amendment. Like the the 100th anniversary, the way it's being publicly celebrated, it feels like there is a tendency for women who find it easy to vote to give themselves a pat on the back and say like, look, we've been doing this for 100 years. We're all good on this front. Um, And I think particularly of, for instance, a big centenary celebration that's being sponsored by Goldman Sachs. Intuit TurboTax that's happening this year. It's going to be headlined by Hillary Clinton. There are a lot of really great women speaking at it, actually. Um, But it doesn't feel like a radical proposition that all women should have the right to vote when Goldman Sachs can proudly put its name on that and announce that they're an official partner of that project. I I do wonder how that relates to the, the women who are being left out of this. Where is their place in these celebrations? I think
2: it goes back to how the 19th Amendment was won in the first place, right? These tensions around, you know, but what is this really going to mean for all women? Not just women who already had a relative degree of privilege because of their race. I'm thinking of the fights within the suffrage movement. You know, should they be fighting for universal suffrage? Should they settle for suffrage for white women only? as they sort of kept repackaging the right to vote to attract a broader and broader group of support, they really had to like depoliticize what it was, right? You stop asserting why this is important, right? And you see this in the black suffrage movement, like, well, this right matters because look at the way that we're being abused, even riding a trolley, right? This Mm -hmm. immediate connection to your like actual lived experience. Whereas for some women, I think they felt like once they got this right, they were pretty much all set and there was nothing left to fight for. And we still have that kind of inequality and that sense of like, you know, does the vote really accomplish all of your rights? I don't think it even does for white women. I think that's a ridiculous thing to say, but it makes it easier to celebrate the centenary and put on your white pantsuit and leave your I voted sticker on (laughs) Susan B. Anthony's grave or
0: whatever you were going to do. Right now we're, we're talking about a bunch of women in Florida who aren't allowed to vote because they can't afford fines. And I think... You know, Goldman Sachs might be able to help out if they actually care.
2: <laughs> I mean, real talk, Goldman Sachs could pay the fine. So every right. single person in Florida and then they could go vote um, <laughs> if they could figure out where to pay them. This is one of the other things about it that's just so insidious. Like the state of Florida is saying "Well, we actually can't tell you where yeah. the money you owe needs to go. So it's yeah. structurally impossible for people to pay it. But, but say that it wasn't. Say that Goldman Sachs couldn't call up Florida's secretary of state figure out where to write their 1.5 million check or however much it is, they could wipe that debt out in a blink. Right. But but that's not what it's about. Like, what is Goldman Sachs celebrating when they're celebrating the 19th Amendment? I don't think they're celebrating women's full participation in the political project. Right. They're celebrating a particular version of it, a particular kind of woman who Mm -hmm. would be welcome at such an event.
1: And I wonder if the focus on this being purely a women's rights issue, something that's very historical feeling, means that we don't talk about the ways that it intersects with economic inequality and also racial justice. Just taking a look at what does it mean to do
2: like women's rights political work right now? What is the feminist project right now? I think that sort of the most interesting, the most lively, the most potentially successful advocacy for women's rights that's happening right now is not itself happening under the umbrella of women's rights, right? It's happening in racial justice movements, it's happening in people who are fighting for Medicare for all, it's happening in movements for climate justice, where there's a recognition that these things are all connected and there's a recognition of women's leadership. I don't think it's an accident that, you know, many of the most visible first leaders in the movement for black lives, including the three women who coined it, were black women. And, mm-hmm. you know, does that make Black Lives Matter a women's movement? Does it need to be? I mean, I think just the idea of sort of foregrounding women, it's not necessary to do the work of women's rights. There's other ways that you can do it, other ways to bring people together. As I was trying to find examples of who was fighting for women to fully be enfranchised. Where I found people doing that work was, you know, in criminal justice reform movements, right? Which Mm -hmm. makes total sense when you understand that felony disenfranchisement is such a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. But to go looking for women's rights in the criminal justice reform movement is not necessarily an automatic leap for a lot of people. Mm
1: -hmm. I can imagine if we were sitting here 2020 in the fourth year of Hillary Clinton presidency, that it would be so easy for so many people to get together and celebrate the 19th Amendment. Job done. Women can vote now. Women can even be the president. And as much as I would prefer that reality to the one that we're living in, I do wonder if the fact that we are living in something that is so the opposite of that might draw attention to the women who have been left behind here and the fact that I think in order to keep a maximum number of people in the franchise probably always requires a degree of ongoing political Energy. I think that's right. I think that
2: like the stakes of this moment, then all of the different ways that people are under threat right now, whether it's their health, their job, their ability to remain in the country. When you have multiple fronts of attack, then you have multiple opportunities for people to identify. Oh, OK this project actually has sort of a logic behind it. It's about denying our citizenship. It's about denying our right to be here. It's about denying our autonomy. And I think it becomes a little more clear how many ways that that's still like an open fight.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking to us today, Melissa.
1: Thanks for having me, you guys. After a short break, we'll be back to talk about the explosion of books about Donald Trump and how he's changed the way we read.
0: For our second segment today, we are joined once again by New Republic staff writer Alex Shepard, who has carved out a fun beat for himself at TNR, the bad Trump book beat. Uh, Broadly, Alex says that books about Trump are selling great. Books about Trump by reporters, books about Trump by people who know him, biographies, insider accounts from the White House. And in the publishing industry, traditionally, when some books are doing really, really well, that's good news for everyone who writes books, because it can subsidize the rest of the books that publishers put out. Uh, Alex suggests that this thing that you thought was good may not be good, and he's going to tell us why. Alex, what is Trump doing to books as we know them?
3: He's selling a lot of them. Publishers had initially resisted publishing books about Donald Trump, assuming like, many uh, effete liberals uh, with a lot of money, that he would go away after the fall of 2016. When that didn't happen, they basically bought every book in sight that had anything to do with Donald Trump. And what they saw was that if you put uh, the president's face on a book cover, or you gave it uh, a title with one of his catchphrases, then that book would probably sell at least 100,000 copies. So the biggest selling of these books was Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury. That was also the one that sort of kicked off this trend. It was published in January of 2018, sold over 4 million copies, probably close to 5 million now. Uh, Bob Woodward's Fear sold 1.1 million. The the two most recent books, John Bolton's The Room Where It Happened and Mary Trump's book about How Her Family Destroyed America, Uh, those two books each sold about a million copies on their first day.
0: Very, very, very current events books have not traditionally dominated the bestseller list, right?
3: You certainly not in this volume. During the Bush era, you saw books like um, Richard Clark. That book sold 500,000 copies. You also had sort of like lower market books. You had Jacob Weisberg's Bushisms that came out in 2001 and was a collection of all the zany stuff that George W. Bush said. You know, Franken's political career was essentially based on the books that he wrote about Rush Limbaugh and the Bush administration. I think what you're seeing now is a change to this being its own bona fide genre. And the genre is books about how the president is a bad man who's doing bad things.
0: Are these good books, Alex? Are these, (laughs) are these, (laughs) how are these books as books?
3: Uh, They're bad. Uh, (laughs) Many of them are not books in a conventional sense. Robert Garou, he's the G in FSG, he used to have a saying, he would call these things uks because they're like a book, but you know, not quite there. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) There is a lack of analysis. In many cases, there's a lack of uh, just factual accuracy, I think you know in some ways michael Will's Fire and fury is the er trump book and that it was splashy it got a lot of things wrong and basically nobody remembers anything about it 2 years later a lot of these books mm-hmm. can drive the news for you know a week or two but as a book you know books are supposed to add some some sort of value that you don't get from reading the news and and none of these books do that
1: Traditionally, we do not look to books to, to break news because books take a really long time to write. So generally, you're looking at a book to sort of like provide more context, give a really in-depth, careful accounting of something that happened, sort of reframe a big narrative rather than to just give you some information, which I think is what you're saying these books do. They, they sometimes have like splashy little nuggets. That's the stuff that you'll see picked up in the post. My question then is, why are people buying those books? If you can get the Splashy Nuggets in a New York magazine excerpt to Fire and Fury, why buying Fire and Fury?
3: I have a few theories. Uh, one is just that these books, from a publicity standpoint, they've obliterated anything else. So, you know, book marketing has historically been done by getting people on television and radio. And it used to be that you've got a wide variety of authors who would do this. And now pretty much everybody who's getting that attention has written a book about the president. But from a consumer perspective, you saw a little bit of this in the wake of George Floyd's killing, where I think that there's a real drive for people to buy books that explain the moment. And I don't know if they read these books at all, but the act of buying something now that is you know a little weightier than what you read on Politico or New York Magazine or something, I think has a kind of moral value for people. I think that the president tweeting about these books plays a a really big role in this too, where, you know, Bolton and the Mary Trump book are really good examples where he went out and said, oh, these people are terrible. The books are really bad. The Mm -hmm. fact that these books are viscerally making this guy angry is driving sales, right? You're participating in making him mad. uh, And that is worth $28.
1: This does run counter to what you tend to think of as building up a book collection. Like, you know, curating your bookshelf, you fill it with the subjects that you enjoy reading about that kind of define you as a person. I think we're all familiar with the idea of hate reading articles online, but is this a kind of hate buying books? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a real, I was, as you were saying that, I realized that, you know, I, I've read Probably about 60 of these books, and they're in my closet. Oh, my like, I don't put them on my bookshelves.
0: <laughs> we can see his bookshelf right now, by the way. And he, I'm not seeing, I think I see Cloud Atlas. I'm not seeing any Trump books.
3: Let's <laughs>
1: Very on brand.
3: <laughs> Please cut that out.
1: <laughs> they definitely, it seems like there's that element of reading as an act of defiance about something that you want to arm yourself with knowledge about. But I do want to go back to the idea of buying these books as an act of kind of like civic participation. I thought a really interesting complement to this is that sales of the Constitution have also followed a very interesting pattern during the Trump administration.
3: Buying constitutions used to be something that you only saw on the right. But what's happened you know, since Trump's election is that every major offensive act within the administration They've been greeted with you know, huge spikes in sales of the Constitution. One person I spoke to said that sales of the Constitution during this period have outstripped any of the major books that we're talking about. Um, and this is, of course, you know, a document that one is like not super—you know—it's not something that you yeah. read at the you know after a hard day. But it's a sort of symbol of this kind of civic participation in publishing, of using your money to show that you're engaged in politics.
1: Yeah. And that's where I think there are parallels with the, the patterns of buying Trump books, right? Because these may not be books that you sit down in your armchair and read cover to cover for the pleasure of reading, but they're, they're documents that you want to have access to, that you want to examine and that sort of signal something about what your values
3: are. Yeah, that's right. And I think that, you know, this has long been a, a feature on the right and, you know, has sort of created this cottage industry that, has sustained a lot of right-wing and conservative voices, you know, going back generations at this point. Obviously, the publishing industry itself is almost entirely liberal. It's based in Manhattan. But we haven't seen this sort of emergence of a kind of full-throated partisan publishing system in those spaces. And I think that that's what we're seeing now. And, and I think that that's going to outlast Donald Trump, no matter what a lot of people say.
0: Yeah, that's that's the question, right? What does the near future of book sales look like, assuming or hoping we're in the post-Trump era soon with a Democratic campaign that is partially saying, "Elect me, you won't have to think about the government anymore."
3: I think it, it you know, the question is really what you think American political life is going to look like. I think that what we're seeing is, you know, the sort of hyper political engagement, and I don't see these people backing down after Trump goes away. I think it's certainly going to be aided by the fact that Donald Trump will continue to have access to his Twitter account, he's going to presumably mm-hmm. publish a book, but we're also going to see a wave of books from people both within the Trump administration who are you know, either trying to launder the horrible things that they did or use those horrible things as a stepping stone to future political success. You're gonna see, I think, another wave of books that are trying to make sense of what's happened over the last four or five years, because that's the sort of area in publishing that we haven't seen a lot of yet.
0: So when when everything or at least everything that sells is a Trump book, what are we losing out on? What are we missing culturally from books right now?
3: Well, I think what we're missing is the sort of cultural aspect, right? And sales of you know, adult fiction have been trending downward since 2015 overall, they're down about 20% from where they were just five years ago. And that, I think, has profound effects on cultural life. The point of the publishing industry is to put out great works of literature, theoretically. But by focusing more and more on these you know, really disposable bestsellers, publishers have really moved away from trying to build up and support Writers of fiction in particular. And that I think is a shame and will have long lasting effects on American culture.
0: Well, thankfully, there's Quibi. <laughs> <Yeah.
3: What>?
0: <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> <laughs> no more so novels. But <laughs> no, we, don't, we don't have novels anymore, but we have yeah. Quibi. So <laughs> I think everything's going to be fine, Alex. I think there's,
1: there's going to be a few more Trump books in your future.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, well, thank you for talking to us and uh, enjoy the rest of the Trump books you'll continue torturing (laughs) yourself with.
3: Thank you.
1: (laughs) This is the Politics of Everything. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening.